Welcome to ReachMD. This medical industry feature titled, Diagnosing Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, a look at the complete picture, is sponsored by AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo, and is not CME accredited, and may not be used for CME accreditation. This recording of a live webinar features both expert presentations and panel discussions, and the speakers have been compensated for their time. This program will not discuss or promote any investigational or approved drugs and does not refer to drugs by their brand name or commercial entities. Let's hear from the experts now. Hi, I'm Bruce uh, Johnson. I'm going to be speaking on the evolving landscape of non-small cell lung cancer. I'm the uh, co-director of the Center for Cancer Genomics at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. One of the things we're happy about is that lung cancer incidence is decreasing due in part to reduced smoking rates. But in addition, new trends are emerging uh, as things change. Smoking rates have decreased over the past decade, and most lung cancers are now diagnosed in people who've quit smoking. In 2019, 14% of US adults ages 18 or older years currently smoke. However, Non-smoking related lung cancer cases are increasing and are disproportionately affecting women, Hispanic and Asian individuals. And today, more young women than young men are being diagnosed with lung cancer. So the incidence rate per 100,000 for patients 15 to 39 in the US is 0.95 for men and higher 1.12 for women. We are also seeing the impact of screening on detecting early stage lung cancer. It's recommended for annual screening with low-dose CT because it's beneficial for the early detection of lung cancer. The impact of annual screening with low-dose CT is a 20% decrease in lung cancer mortality and a 7% decrease in all-cause mortality. However, only 6.5% of the U.S. eligible population received their annual screening in 2020. In addition, there's an increasing number of key biomarkers that guide treatment decisions for patients with non-small cell lung cancer. There's more than 25 biomarker-driven targeted therapies and immunotherapies are now FDA-approved for non-small cell lung cancer. The pace at which these are being discovered are increasing with five key biomarkers identified since 2019 that are associated with these targeted therapies. Uh, This graphic on the right side of the panel uh, shows the proportion of biomarker with a high of EGFR mutation positive at 21% and a low of NTRAC rearrangements at 1%. Up to 69% of patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer have at least one actionable alteration that can affect the impact of the treatment. In addition, patients with non-small cell lung cancer who have the oncogenic driver or the biomarker present and are treated with targeted therapy live longer. So the two-year relative survival rates increases from 2001 to 2014, going from 26% surviving at two years um, in men to 35% in 2014. And for women, it goes from 35 to 44% from 2001 to 2014, showing survival improvements and are likely driven by targeted therapies. The panel uh, shows the outcome of patients who have a targetable lesion identified and are treated with the targeted therapy. Um, Here are the patients who have uh, a target and get treated with targeted therapy, have a median survival of 31.8 months, 
the non-targeted cytotoxic therapy, it's 12.7 months. With those who have observation only, it's 5.1 months. Despite these advancements, some challenges remain to be solved. There's challenges in diagnosis of people being uh, aware of the symptoms, the evolving patient profile with more uh, never smokers and more uh, former smokers, the adherence to the screening guidelines of patients getting annual low-dose CT scans, and the screening guidelines do not include people without a history of smoking, for instance, people with family histories, and a risk assessment. The challenges in the biomarker testing are long turnaround time where people don't feel they have time to wait for the results, the obtaining adequate tissue quality and quantity to be able to do a next-generation sequencing panel or broad molecular testing, the lack of standardized testing processes, i.e. a efficient and timely sample collection, ordering the test and testing and getting the results, the next-generation sequencing testing rates and the ability of next-generation results interpretation that allows one to choose the appropriate treatments. The challenges uh, of both diagnosis and biomarker testing are that health disparities in vulnerable populations make it less likely, the lack of support resources to carry out the testing and get the diagnosis, and the potential financial burden involved in the diagnosis and biomarker testing. The key points from this are the majority of lung cancers are diagnosed in people who quit smoking. The cases of lung cancer are increasing in young women and individuals without a smoking history. An inadequate number of patients who meet the criteria for CT screening are getting chest CT scans. Comprehensive biomarker testing, including next generation sequencing, is the most effective method for identifying biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer and matching the patients with appropriate targeted therapies. And despite good progress, challenges and disparities in screening, diagnosis, and biomarker testing exist which are impacting vulnerable populations and women with non-small cell lung cancer. Thank you. I want to uh, call on some of my colleagues to make some comments about, um, about the evolving landscape of non-small cell lung cancer. And first, I'd like to call on Dr. Feller-Kotman um, and, and address some issues around screening. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about this. The, the first is that um, you want to talk about the updated screening guidelines and how they offer the opportunity to get an early diagnosis on more of our patients? Sure. So as we all know, uh, the guidelines have been recently um, updated to expand the age group. Um, we now have the ability to screen patients from 50 to 80. Um, we smoked a pack a day for 20 pack years. And that's certainly going to increase the number of patients at risk of lung cancer who we could screen. One of the big issues is that, as we've discussed, un unlike um, breast cancer, cervical cancer, colon cancer, where about 70 to 80% of eligible patients are getting screened for those cancers, only about 6% of patients with lung cancer are getting screened. And, and that's a huge issue. And there, there are a lot of barriers to that. Some of it has to do with physicians and the amount of time that we have to make these uh, conversations, which, which take a lot of time and insight, and it's really a shared decision-making process. Other are barriers to those who are at risk. Um, there's a nice study by Gerard Silvestri's group suggesting that uh, patients who are at the highest risk of lung cancer tend to have less access to primary care, 
Uh, they can't identify primary care physicians. They tend to be more nihilistic about it. So there's a lot of work to do, both in terms of education of our patients, um, education of our colleagues, and expanding access to lung cancer screening in general. Um, one of the things that comes up, and especially if the screening is being done in a primary care setting, uh, you want to talk about your personal experience with uh, how you manage the incidental pulmonary nodules and, and some clues you can get to other members of our audience about how you handle this once it's detected? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So in addition to screen-detected nodules, uh, there's really almost an epidemic of these incidental detected lung nodules. Uh, patient falls off a ladder, goes to the emergency room, get a CAT scan, and they, they get a lung nodule. Um, even though they may not be in that screened high, quote unquote, high risk population, there are a percentage of those that will turn into cancer. And it's really important to make sure that those aren't just written off as a, a lung cancer in a female non-smoker. We're seeing an increased incidence of cancer in female non-smokers, as well as traditionally underserved populations, such as African-Americans, especially women, uh, Hispanic, Asian patients. So those nodules need to be followed and, and they should be uh, followed as per current guidelines. You can't just assume those are non-malignant nodules. I want to turn to Dr. Duma, and, and one of the um, things that happened this year in the CA Cancer Journal for Relations to Cancer Statistics in 2022, uh, it went so that there's more women being diagnosed with lung cancer now than men, which is uh, quite a change from when I first got into business, uh, number one. And then uh, number two is that we're seeing... Um, a greater number of women than men, particularly those who are relatively young. So you want to comment on the evolving patient uh, demographics and, um, and, and talk about the diagnostic steps that one takes? Thank you, Dr. Johnson. What you, you, know, what you said is something that has been described and continues to be seen not only in the United States, but all across the globe. Our colleagues from Europe, for Asia, have been seeing that Younger women are now the number one patient and uh, having the incident continues to go up despite other groups going down. And what this means is we need to change and eliminate the perception that lung cancer is a disease of elderly white men, because these are stereotypes and setups delays the diagnosis of patients. So one recent study shows that young women actually are facing twice to three times delays in diagnosis. And if you're a woman of color, that can be longer because they're not seen as a traditional patient with lung cancer. So let's eliminate all those stereotypes and realize there are more women dying of lung cancer than breast, colorectal, uterine, and ovarian combined. And see a patient with a blank sheet, right? Instead of how we have been taught to associate diseases to certain groups. And what is important about this is that younger women live longer. So now lung cancer survivorship is shifting to a different phase. Um, and, and I'm glad to be with these great experts to see how we continue to improve the care of all patients with lung cancer. So I'm gonna turn to uh, Dr. Wastuba and um, you wanna talk about, um, especially over the last, I guess it's seven, uh, 18 years now about the rate at which they're discovering biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer that are determining tr treatment and, and how best to identify them and how it in, is impacting our patients. Thank you, Bruce. 
I think that when we um, look at metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, particularly the non-squamous histology, most of them being adenocarcinoma, this varies in different parts of the world, but in Western country, we can say safely that about 60% of these patients go through biomarker testing could potentially benefit from uh, actionable you know, uh, findings. Even it's higher in some other uh, um, part of the world, like East, Eastern Asia. Uh, but this requires, of course, to have a comprehensive panel of molecular testing that compass you know, all the, 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 the mutations, translocation, increased copinavnet that have been discovered. Thank you. Okay. And uh, Dr. Kersrock, do you want to talk about the, the impact that targeted therapies and immunotherapies are having in our patients with lung cancer? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, I, I think uh, lung cancer a decade ago was the poster child for a lethal malignancy uh, where we had very poor therapy. And uh, now it's becoming the poster child for uh, still a lethal malignancy, but a malignancy in which um, targeted therapy, uh, often driven by uh, genomics, as well as immunotherapy, uh, really can make a difference uh, to the outcome of these patients. So uh, I think what we've seen is uh, literally a transformation um, in lung cancer. Uh, and uh, we are just getting a glimpse of uh, the road uh, here. I, I think this will continue to accelerate. And uh, this is important uh, for lung cancer patients all but uh, in addition, uh, I believe that the lessons learned in lung cancer um, are applicable to many other solid tumors. Uh, going from a cancer that we literally felt uh, we had very few ways to treat uh, to now a cancer in which we have an abundance of genomic markers and uh, which we can address in the clinic. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Narajas Duma. I'm the Associate Director of Cancer Care Equity at Dana-Farber and at Thoracic Medical Oncologist. We're going to be talking about reducing diagnostic barriers to have inclusive testing for all patients with lung cancer. Disparities in diagnosis exist, and they are particularly for certain groups of patients. And these are vulnerable populations, Black patients, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, members of the LGBTQ plus community, and women. Black individuals in the United States are 16% less likely to be diagnosed with early stage lung cancer. This also applies to women. Women can experience delays at diagnosis compared to the male counterparts. In addition, patients without a smoking history often face barriers to diagnosis as they're not seen as patients at risk for lung cancer. I have an example of a patient, a 45-year-old Hispanic female with a very limited smoking history. She presented to the ER with chest pain and diarrhea, but she experienced significant weeks of delay for her diagnosis, a mammogram, several COVID-19 tests, and other causes before she was able to be diagnosed. Unfortunately, at the time of diagnosis, she already had metastatic disease, and you can see that in the CT scan with multiple pulmonary nodules. Unfortunately, her story is way too common in my clinic. 
Many women with limited or no smoking history experience delays in diagnosis, or other diagnoses are attributed to them, like anxiety, asthma, or sarcoidosis. Including the complex and lengthy diagnostic process, many patients may require several biopsies, several visits to the doctor. Resources change depending on the setting, academic versus community settings. 85% of patients in the United States are diagnosed in the community centers, which they have limited resources compared to centers like mine. And additionally, unconscious bias for providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, in which they may don't see lung cancer as a disease of women or other populations. Access to annual, annual screening, it is important, but it's not equal in the United States. We have two large studies that have shown that annual screening for lung cancer saves lives. Unfortunately, certain groups like Black, Asian, Hispanic women are less likely to receive a screening education or screening period. We need to make sure that patients receive education and the appropriate screening on time. There's also a low perception of risk among patients uh, that are never smokers or women. Often healthcare providers don't see lung cancer as a disease for these patients delaying diagnosis. Only 6% of US adults are aware that lung cancer is the primary cause of cancer death in women in the United States. The disease is associated with stigma, so that delays diagnosis. Healthcare providers like myself sometimes contribute to stigma and patients may feel ashamed if they have a smoking history to seek care. Our complex healthcare system is a main reason for delays in diagnosis for lung cancer. And this is associated with social determinants of health. Access to your cancer center can be 200 miles away. You may not feel comfortable talking about medical issues if your English is not your first language. All of that contributes to delays in the diagnosis of lung cancer, and they should be addressed at the time of diagnosis, and they should be addressed as the patients continue their journey. Effective communication is vital for addressing diagnostic disparities. We need to get away from all these complex words that we all learn in medical school. Yes, we know that you are smart, but let's use language that our patients understand. Also, let's break down information don't provide all the information at once. It can produce information overload. Work as a team We advance practice professionals and navigators. And it's important that we see lung cancer as a disease that affects everyone. The only requirement for having lung cancer is having a pair of lungs, regardless of sex, race, and regardless of smoking exposure. These are our key points. Health disparities in no small cell lung cancer are present, affects our patients' quality of life, and our patients' survival. There are significant delays in diagnosis of lung cancer for women, patients that never smoke, and other vulnerable populations. Access to screening, access to social and economic factors should be essential when providing diagnosis workout and we following up with patients. Effective communication is also vital. Thank you everyone for um, me and we also, as we continue to discuss barriers for diagnostic, uh, making a diagnosis of lung cancer as well as biomarkers. Barriers, barriers go from the moment of screening all the way until the patient receives treatment. We're going to continue this very fruitful discussion. We have a few questions to our panelists. So Dr. Bistuva, in your opinion, what are the top three barriers for diagnostic testing in no small cell lung cancer today? Thank you for the question. As I will discuss uh, briefly in the presentation, 
there are several barriers uh, to have a, a broad, comprehensive molecular testing in non-small cell lung cancer. But the top three, in my opinions, are uh, lack of a universal algorithm for um, biomarker testing in, in this disease. That's number one. The second, I think that is the uh, variable insurance coverage, which includes uh, the requirement of pre-authorization in many instances. And the third one is, is, is the challenge of have enough material for molecular testing, diagnostic biopsies, some of them in form of cytology specimen, final aspirations are very limited and many times, and they're sometimes completely used in the diagnostic workup of the case, and there's not enough material left for molecular testing. So keeping molecular testing in mind uh, from the beginning uh, in the diagnostic process, I think that's very important to at least uh, uh, improve on this barrier. Thank you. Thank you. And as appears that issue is still the issue. Dr. Johnson, you want to add something? I, uh, the comment I would have, and one of the things we, we uh, polled our providers here, and the issue that Dr. Wastuba brought up is about the concern about insurance coverage. In most of our cases, uh, there's more of a concern than there is a, in reality about the, the companies covering it. Most of, Indeed, most of them cover it, uh, and certainly it's increasingly so. The one thing that is a bit of a challenge is that we'll the coverage will vary from one uh, insurer to another. Most of them cover it, but a few don't, and you don't necessarily know that ahead of time. And that's true, and that's a concern not only to patients, not only to the providers, but also to patients. You know, out-of-pocket expenses continue to grow, and now with testing happen to all phases of lung cancer, you don't know which way you're going to go. Um, many studies have shown that multidisciplinary care in lung cancer has many benefits includes uh, for patients to get adequate, adequate care, to get unbiased care. So Dr. Philip Kopman, how can we improve multidisciplinary communication to ensure timely diagnosis for lung cancer? Over time, we have more ways to communicate, but in my personal opinion has become more challenging. Is it email, text, page, phone call? What are your recommendations? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I, I sort of liken that question to um, how we encourage our patients to quit smoking or, or do anything. There's the pre-contemplative phase, the contemplative phase, the determination phase, and the action phase. So the first thing is understanding that you want to increase your multidisciplinary communication for this. And then you got to look at your specific practice pattern. How are you going to do this? Are you going to do a virtual tumor board where you get uh, the um, pulmonologists, thoracic surgeons, interventional radiologists, um, medical and radiation oncology, pathology and radiology all in a room or on, on a webinar together? Um, are you going to come up with pathways that, say, if a patient has a peripheral lung nodule, but it's actually a, a sizable peripheral lung nodule, maybe they should go for bronchoscopy with staging first as opposed to a transthoracic needle biopsy. So I think you got to really be a little introspective and see what your practice pattern is like, what your local expertise is like. Do you have an outstanding intervention, interventional radiologist or interventional pulmonologist or both? Um, and then take the action of making sure that you work together to communicate. I'm a big proponent of phone calls. Um, I may be a little bit 
on the negative, but training at Mayo Clinic, I really like that phone call is quick instead of just messages back and forward, but you need to find the style that works for your team. For sure. Data has shown that our unfortunately disparities in diagnosis on lung cancer, not only by race, but also by gender location to the patient release in rural area. For example, Dr. Johnson, can you share our views of how we can reduce these disparities in the diagnosis of lung cancer? Well, number one is, you know, access to a healthcare system. Um, and that can take many different uh, venues. So for instance, you know, people who are insured are more likely to be able to access uh, and uh, access the medical care system. The second is, is that it, we vary a lot geographically by the support for people who are, um, who are uh, underserved, uh, both in terms of uh, ethnic group as well as uh, income disparities. One of the things that's a bit different about lung cancer than some of the other commonly screened uh, cancers is that, uh, you know, for instance, with breast cancer and with colon cancer, both those track with higher socioeconomic status. And one of the things uh, for lung cancer, the, it's uh, higher in uh, l- people with uh, less education, uh, and it's also higher in people who have lower incomes. So it, it becomes a, a group that it can be a challenge to be able to access and effectively utilize the medical system. Uh, Some of the things that have helped is uh, making certain that um, diagnostic procedures are available uh, beyond typical work hours, Uh, number one. Number two is that the other part that's been helping for people getting screened is having having, uh, navigators to make certain that people are able to show up and get their screens on a regular basis. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. And navigation, you know, needs to be tailored to the needs of each patient as the navigation needs in rural U.S. are quite different for us here in Boston. Uh, We continue to talk about systemic change, but I'm a big proponent of individual uh, work and individual responsibility. So, Dr. Kuzrock, what can healthcare providers do at the individual level to reduce these disparities in lung cancer? Um, So, I I, I think uh, there's a a couple, uh, there's a few things that physicians can do. And uh, one uh, you alluded to earlier is uh, to recognize that lung cancer is not a stereotype of an older white person that has smoked for a long time, but increasingly is um, occurring in younger people, including uh, women, and that uh, with appropriate symptoms, um, the patient needs to be fully worked up. Um, I also think that there are some systemic things that can be done once lung cancer is diagnosed. Uh, For instance, since almost uh, 70% of lung cancers now have a targetable alteration, uh, it might be time to think about reflex uh, next generation sequencing. Um, Just as part of, uh, just like we would uh, look at uh, the pathology under the microscope, Um, and do certain stains, uh, perhaps we should at this point uh, be doing next generation sequencing as a reflex. Thank you, doctor. And as we learn from from our colleagues, I think we need to see lung cancer like we see breast cancer. It is hard to report a breast cancer just as it is without hormonal status. So we should adopt the same culture in lung cancer in which when a fellow presents a patient with lung adenocarcinoma, it still feels incomplete. Give me more. Like we need to get more. So thank you all for your input. 
everyone. I'm Ignacio Wistuba, Head of Interim of Division of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, and Chair of the Department of Translational Molecular Pathology at the Anderson Cancer Center. I will discuss briefly the challenges and opportunities for broad molecular uh, profiling in lung cancer. The lung cancer pathology community has developed an algorithm for the rational use of tissue and cytology specimen for the pathology diagnosis of the disease and to preserve samples for biomarker testing. This algorithm includes a limited use of immunochemistry to properly identify the subtype of non-small cell lung cancer. The key biomarkers in this disease recommended for testing are listed here, including the assessment of key mutations and gene fusion affected several genes, in addition to the immunostochemical assessment of the expression of pd one Broad molecular profiling, including next generation of sequencing or NGS, is the most effective method for identifying key biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer, offering substantial benefit of a single gene testing. Importantly, broad molecular profiling with NGS can identify all four types of genomic alterations needed in lung cancer. Point mutations, small insertions and deletions, amplifications, and gene rearrangements. Also, NGS provides most effective use of tissue and can be performed in routine small formalin fixed and paraffin embedded tissue and cytology specimens and blood samples in the form of liquid biopsy. NGS offers more options for patient treatment and the use of upfront NGS testing in patients with metastatic non-small cell cancer has been associated with substantial cost-saving and shorter time-to-test results for both CMS and commercial payers. How are we doing with regard to NGS testing in the United States? Testing with NGS is at an all-time high and has increased dramatically over the last few years. However, still 40% of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer patients are still not being tested with NGS in this country. Despite the benefit of NGS testing that I mentioned before, barriers to its use exist. Some are logistic and some are technical. On the logistic barrier, we should consider the infrastructural differences between academic and community setting, which can also pose challenges with regard to molecular testing in this disease. Academic centers tend to perform molecular testing in-house with better communication between healthcare providers, where community settings are more likely to utilize commercial laboratory and send out the test, the material. There is variable insurance coverage and need for pre-authorization among insurance companies, and also the existence of some companion diagnostic labels can deter healthcare providers from ordering NGS panels. On the technical barriers, we need to consider the turnaround time, since the usual 10 business days to get results on a comprehensive NGS panel may represent an issue for certain patients. There are challenges in tumor sample acquisition since for pathologies, limited tissue availability from small biopsy and cytology specimen is the main barrier to conducting broad molecular profiling. And there are challenges associated to the interpretation of the results for healthcare providers, since the reports can be difficult to interpret. Unfortunately, there is still significant disparities in NGS testing, with vulnerable and socioeconomically disadvantaged patients less likely to receive testing. It has been shown that black individuals 
are significantly less likely to be tested than white individuals. As key point, already explained, there is consensus that NGS is the most effective method for identification of key biomarkers and enabling treatment decision for precision medicine and in the standard of care and clinical trials. Although NGS testing rates are rising, some challenges and barriers to adoption remain. So, what is needed to increase the adoption of and utilization of NGS? Here we have five points to consider. We need to increase on the familiarity and adherence to guidelines that endorse testing methodologies and algorithms, improve infrastructure and availability of expanded NGS testing, address reimbursement barriers, develop quality metrics to assess turnaround time and utilization of biomarkers testing, and increase the adoption of reflex testing on each institution. And thank you for your attention. Welcome back to uh, our panel discussion. And now we're gonna have a brief conversation about how we can actually um, overcome the barriers for uh, biomarker testing in, in lung cancer. So to start the conversation, I would like to ask Dr. Johnson is to share his view on how we further increase the adoption and utilization of NGS in United States. So one, one of the things that, um, you know, as, as a practicing oncologist, and, and, and it happened this week, is that, um, you know, I see a lot of people that have been diagnosed a few days to sometimes a couple of weeks before I see them. And uh, it, it's extremely rare that they would uh, have next generation sequencing panels ordered before I see them. And the typical uh, amount of time that we wait uh, to get the results is about two weeks. And um, that's kind of the limit about how long oncologists want to wait before they, they choose their treatments. It's right at the border. Um, actually, Dr. Rustub and I um, are on something called the National Lung Cancer Roundtable, and, and that per, that and, which is organized by the American Cancer Society, and that's taken it upon itself to work with primary care physicians, interventional radiologists, um, uh, interventional pulmonary physicians, and surgeons to try to make certain that once a person has a diagnosis of lung cancer is that the, the next generation sequencing panels are ordered earlier on in the course and hopefully before they uh, end up getting seen by the oncologist because that's such an important piece uh, as Dr. Duma has mentioned in, in our managing the patients. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. It takes a village, right? Um, because it has to be a multidisciplinary approach. And talking about, you know, the... Uh, approach um, that is needed to overcome some of the barriers. One of the issues is actually the complexity of the reporting on some of these uh, next generation of sequencing panel. So I would like to ask Dr. Kuzrock to share her views and and perhaps outline some available resources on how we can make easier for our colleagues uh, to interpret NGS test results. 
I, I think you're asking a very important question, and I, I think we have room for improvement here. Uh, so the first thing is that uh, many uh, commercially available panels do have a, a pretty good interpretation guide, and uh, similarly for uh, many uh, lab-based panels. Uh, but I think it's still uh, confusing, and one can go to OncoKB and see the uh, relevance of certain alterations. Uh, but as I mentioned, I strongly believe that there's room for improvement. And uh, one thought might be to have some sort of online tool that is uh, basically universally available on the internet and is uh, continuously updated uh, where uh, physicians and other uh, healthcare personnel could, and patients could, can go and just click in uh, to what they see on the panel and get information that is easily readable, even by the layperson. Thank you. And many institutions have these tumor uh, board, right, or uh, genomic tumor boards, that, but they're not accessible to everyone, right, if you work in a community setting, sometimes it's hard to access to those. So that's very good um, uh, suggestion. Thank you very much. So then um, to talk about the process that are required to facilitate routine uh, use of uh, broad molecular profiling through NGS, I would like to ask Dr. Federer Kaufman to share his views about how we can actually improve on these processes. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think as with a lot of this, it really depends on communication. So as Dr. Johnson pointed out, he can't really make a treatment decision until all this information is back. And if you could think about it from the patient's perspective, um, if they're coming in, they're seeing their primary care doctor, then they eventually go to see a pulmonologist. The pulmonologist decides to do a bronchoscopy. The bronchoscopy is done several days later. The pathology results come back several days later showing cancer and prompting an oncology consultation it's still going to take several more weeks if that is when you're ordering your uh, markers. Uh, so what we've done at the several institutions that I've worked with is talk with pathology um, and cytopathology such that once the biopsy is obtained and it shows a lung cancer, there's reflex testing for broad molecular sequencing, including NGS. Um, and even at the time of this high suspicion, if you have um, on-site cytopathology, for example, uh, you could certainly make sure that that is ordered at the time of the biopsy. Um, you could also perhaps do liquid biopsy at that same time. Thank you very much. We have heard over and over reflex testing, right? As one uh, potential, uh, you know, um, good solution to some of these barriers. And then a very important topic, and we have discussed this already, but I would like to get from Dr. Dumacher, um opinion on given the disparities in biomarkers testing, how do we increase the adoption and utilization of NGS in these uh, in our in, in vulnerable vulnerable populations? I think there's two things we can do. One is accountability. We need to make people accountable for doing an incomplete job. Um, no having biomarker testing with patients with no squamous, no small cell lung cancer is an incomplete job. I told my patients. Because uh, sometimes it can be anxiety provoking to wait for results for weeks. I use the wedding dress analogy. The majority of my patients are women. 
and which is say, will you pick your wedding dress right away? No, we need to find out what fits for you. And how we're going to do that is by doing biomarker testing. And I can tell you that even this morning in clinic, one of my patients mentioned the wedding dress analogy. She's like, okay, we're waiting for the wedding dresses. Like, yes, we're waiting for the biomarker testing. So accountability is important. We need to, to understand that community providers have many limitations. They're seeing many patients on many diseases. So making accountable, not only the provider, but the institution. And finally, reimbursement. You remember when we started doing the DVT prophylaxis in the hospital? Now, most hospitals would not get reimbursement or we get limitations of reimbursement if that person doesn't have a DVT prophylaxis in the note. So what can, can we do that for lung cancer? And which reimbursement will be affected if we, um, the patient doesn't have biomarker testing, right? And where money is, action follows, as we've seen in our healthcare system. So that's my two recommendations, accountability and reimbursement. Thank you very much, Dr. Duma. Great insight. And I'll remember the wedding dress uh, analogy. So, so now we're going to move to a, a question and answer session. I'm going to uh, uh, turn this over to Dr. Kuzrock, who will, she will lead the conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, and uh, for um, the very nice discussion. Um, so, uh, one of the first questions I want to ask is, or a question that I just see has come in, uh, what can we do at the community level to increase screening rates to ensure that all patients are considered? And uh, perhaps Dr. Duma uh, could help us with that answer. So uh, during my time in the Midwest, uh, before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to visit several private practices. In order to have an intervention, you need to understand how these practices work. So we can now try to, we continue to try to find the solutions that work for academic medicine to apply to community practice. And that is not true. So we, it would be, it's good to sit down and listen to our community providers who see 80% of the patients with the limitations they have. Something that really helps is having an extra person to help this provider. It can be a designated molecular person, a designated pathology person, and that kind of uplift their responsibility, not fully, of the processing. Where is the tissue? Let's get the tissue tested. All of those logistics, because community providers are seeing 20 patients a day, right? So are we adding more responsibilities? So that help and mostly listening to our community providers to what we work for them. And so I, I want to expand a little bit on that because I personally find this an important question. Uh, young people are getting uh, cancer more often and they have delayed diagnosis, um, especially young women. Uh, but how, how do you balance not working everybody up uh, unnecessarily versus not missing uh, the relevant cancers. Uh, do you wanna try and address that, Dr. Duma? So working everybody up, like all patients with lung cancer or all young patients? And the lung young cancer? patients that come in with symptoms. How, how do you balance that? Um, not doing excessive numbers of uh, workups versus not missing patients. Do you have some suggestions there? I think is when we try to, when we get out of the algorithms and become too creative, we start doing things that are not necessary. 
right? And we, we forget to listen to patients. I think a lot of my patients, younger patients, their main complaint is that they complain about a cough and then the, the, the provider just listen other complaint and focus on that complaint. So, and, and that's what delays diagnosis. And another thing I have to add is that COVID has brought this new extra layer because I have a patient that got COVID tested eight times for a cough. So that's an extra thing. I think following algorithms, releasing to our patients' concerns and removing the stereotype that all women with shortness of breath have anxiety. Like, let's just, let's work this out. This is an issue that's affecting your quality of life. With my recommendation. Thank you. Um, Dr. Wastuba, um, I was hoping that you could address um, another question that we haven't touched on too much, um, liquid biopsy. Uh, what do you think about uh, liquid biopsy and especially at diagnosis? And by liquid biopsy, I obviously mean a blood test for next generation sequencing. Thank you for the question. Um, I mean, cell-free uh, DNA testing for lung cancer molecular normalities is an alternative or it's an additional op option and it brings an opportunity for testing, uh, particularly when the diagnostic tissue or cell in form of cytology specimen is not enough for a comprehensive molecular testing because similar platform with kind of almost equivalent level, level of sensitivity can identify the same molecular normalities in the blood that in the tissue. However, sensitivity is not as good as tissue, so it's tissue is preferred, but this tissue is not available or it's too risky to get another biopsy from a patient. I think that cell-free DNA is a great alternative. And in many places, and it has some issues with reimbursement, actually they run them in parallel, biopsy and tissue, because the liquid biopsy results come faster than the tissue. Uh, thank you. I, I, I uh, agree with you. And I personally uh, run the blood and the tissue simultaneously in order to try and ensure that a patient gets an answer that is relatively um, expeditious. Uh, Dr. Johnson, uh, what are your thoughts about repeat tissue biopsy at relapse? Um, there, are, there are times when it's very helpful you know, um, um, one of the one of the things that we have we typically do is, um, you know, biopsy people at the time of progression, um, and it's how we end up defining mechanisms or resistance. Um, some of them are important scientifically. You know, for instance, uh, defining the mechanisms of resistance. Other ones are clinically actionable. So, uh, you know, in, in our own field of lung cancer. Uh, one of the things that can change how you manage these is find out if they have met amplification. One of the first resistance, uh, what the second resistance mechanism discovered with the class of EGFR TKIs and, um, and, and the MET inhibitors uh, combined with the EGFR inhibitors uh, extend the person, the length of time a person can be treated with targeted treatments. Um, it's a bit more challenging to get it covered by the third party payers uh, for this. Uh, my own um, I, I, I think in terms of the relative importance, um, I think getting the initial next generation sequencing panel is very critically important and would focus the efforts there. 
um, the number of times you can apply and, and make treatment decisions based on a repeat biopsy are relatively small. So I, I, I think here, and we spent most of our time focusing on getting the initial next generation sequencing panel. I think that's appropriate. Um, uh, thank you for that nice answer. Uh, there is a question, how will targeted therapies impact patients? And I'm just going to uh, very quickly try to address that important question. Uh, targeted therapies, uh, I think, are transforming lung cancer. But the critical issue is that you have to know which patient gets the targeted therapy. And that requires um, having a comprehensive next generation sequencing panel. Well, uh, thanks everybody for participating in this webinar. This program was sponsored by AstraZeneca and Daiichi Senkyo. If you missed any part of this discussion, visit ReachMD.com slash industry feature. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.